in the hobby. It's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking that we could pull, I don't know, Hall of Famer. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now, introducing Slab Packs from ArenaClub.com. The only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now when I buy slab packs on Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. There is nothing more fun than opening an Arena Club slab pack. I mean, it is so much better than any mystery pack that I've ever purchased because there is a focus on transparency. There is a display of available cards. There are hit rates you can get. When you're graded, you're given a rationale. It is the marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, and displaying. Arena Club Slab Packs are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your pulls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling. You can have them officially graded by Arena Club. The Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent, with a full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. Whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform you have to check out. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash badmoney. Wow, that's a crazy offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack, that's $40 right there. Anyways, that's arenaclub.com slash badmoney for 10% off your first purchase. You got problems that you ought to be concerned with. Supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's bad with money with Gabe S. Done. Hello and welcome to Bad With Money, a show about finances and feelings where we don't talk down to you. I'm your host, Gabe S. Dunn. And with me today is Carrie Sun. Can you tell my audience who you are and what you do? Hi, Gabe. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast today. It's such a pleasure to be here. I love your podcast. My name is Carrie Sun. I am the author of the memoir, Private Equity. And I used to work in finance. I started my career off as a quantitative equity investment analyst at Fidelity Investments. And then after that, I worked at a couple very large hedge funds. I quit the world of high finance a few years ago to get my MFA in creative writing. And it took a few years, but now I'm out with my first book. And I'm really excited to be speaking with you today. Okay, so explain any of that. What was your job? (laughs) Yeah. Great. So at Fidelity Investments, I in college, I had majored in math and finance, minored in economics. And after that, I wanted to kind of, I originally thought I would solve the problem of the stock market. I thought that if I could find some sort of pattern, and this is actually in the in the book, it wasn't to make money for myself, but I thought I would share it with the world and everyone would kind of be able to get a little bit richer from that. And the reason why I thought that and I wanted to solve the stock market is because, you know, I I grew up initially when I was very young in poverty. My parents had just immigrated from China after the Cultural Revolution, and we were really, really struggling financially. Eventually, they they got their graduate degrees from Michigan State University, and then we were able to move up to the middle class. But those years really affected me emotionally, psychologically, and I could see how much that, how much financial security and money affected my family positively and kind of helped my parents both be in a better mood with each other, with me. And I just really thought that just a little bit more money could really help solve so many family problems. And so I, I thought that if I were given the chance to work in equity stock markets, maybe I could find a mathematical pattern there and share it with the world. The reality of that experience turned out to be very, very different. I did work on building stock selection models and portfolio optimization and try, trying to figure out you know, what factors might be predictive of, of the stock market. But ultimately, as with many things, the kind of 
ideal or or what you have in your mind about what a situation is going to be and what it is turned out to be very, very different. And the culture of my first job in finance at Fidelity was also very difficult because it was very unkind, I would say, to women and to people of different and marginalized backgrounds. And it just was not supportive in in any way. And so I had to quit and I thought I would do a pivot. I ended up at enrolling at uh, Wharton and UPenn. I was in a joint degree program. I got there and then I realized that I didn't really want to go through with my business school degree because school is expensive Mm -hmm. and I didn't want to, you know, either take out loans or or spend, take out loans, spend $200,000 to get my MBA because I felt that afterward, I wasn't sure I wanted to continue on the finance path path. Mm -hmm. and I didn't want to take on the debt if I wasn't sure that I was going to be in a career afterward that would allow me to pay that back. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of just dropped out And spent several years just trying to figure out my life. Mm -hmm. And figuring out one's life, I think, is an expensive endeavor because it takes time and time takes money. Mm -hmm. You have to live. And so I was burning through my savings all, all that time, but I felt like I had to do it. There was no other way. And this is the start of my book. I was a recruiter reach out to me via LinkedIn with a job opportunity to work as the assistant to a hedge fund billionaire. And I I was like, you know, sold to me as a once in a lifetime opportunity. This is going to be amazing. And I threw, threw myself into that recruiting process. It was 14 interviews. And, and when I, as soon as my recruiter pitched me for this role, someone from their side called and said, can you come in for an in-person interview in two hours? You know, and so that just gives you a sense of the pace at which that kind of work and that working style in, in that world at the center of Wall Street and global finance, how how they really think about time and work itself. And so that that's the start of my my book. And that's how I ended up here. And I wrote the book and I'm here on the podcast today. Oh, my God. Okay. Wow. Okay. You're being very magnanimous, but you got, okay, so you got to that job. You're clearly brilliant and you have all these like good intentions. And then what, what was the culture? Like what's happening? And also what year is this? Cause I, you know, I'm sure people are listening going, oh, when did she work in finance in the eighties? And it's like, no. <laughs> Yes, I worked there from 2014 to the end of 2016. It sort of, my story kind of ends right when, you know, that unfortunate famous event of the end of 2016. And so it's really kind of showing the, this, the cult, the, 2010s in which there was a very long, I mean, record long bull market. And there was still, I think, a tech idealism and utopianism hope to the world that, you know, every everything could just work out for, for everybody if we just work hard and lived well. And, you know, obviously that turned out to be false. And so throughout 2014 and 2016, I think the culture The culture of my job was one of an extreme focus on return on time. There was not a single second that was wasted. You know, sometimes I would be speaking to my boss in the book and I might take an extra second or two to think about an answer and he would cut me off and say, can you speak faster? You know, sometimes I would have to wait outside the bathroom if he was going to the bathroom and then deliver information in the 10 seconds it took him to walk from the bathroom to the next meeting. You know, it was just every second was completely utilized. And even if the second wasn't, your your second wasn't working, you were expected to be on call. So I, when you're on call, I don't consider that actual rest because at any time you might have to completely change your schedule around. And I just think psychologically as, as workers and as humans, being able to plan your day, plan your next hour and how you work is is so important for our, our sense of agency and power and control over our lives. And I, I just didn't have that. So there was an extreme pressure to do a lot of work, do a lot of 
a lot of work fast. And it was just this cycle that never stopped. And I completely, by the time I was able to take, take a breath, two years had gone by. I was completely burnt out both physically and emotionally and mentally. And I knew I needed to make a huge change. And so I quit. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math and see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything is more expensive these days when you're running a business, and you would be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. The fact that you are able to reduce your IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud is incredible, and the ability to access your cloud financial system from anywhere saves you so much time and stress. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash badwithmoney, netsuite.com slash badwithmoney, netsuite.com slash badwithmoney. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You guys know that I have had allergies for forever. I've had seasonal allergies since I was a kid. It causes pressure in my face, under my eyes. They're my ultimate handbrake. When my nose is plugged up, I feel like I can't do anything. I can't enjoy food because I can't taste it. I can't work out because I feel tired and distracted. I can't even host the show because my voice sounds like a duck. And listen, I am already dealing with vocal strain from testosterone and my voice dropping. I don't need any more problems with allergies. Luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can breathe better. I've been taking Claritin D for allergies like probably for the last 10 years or something, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go outside without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped in my throat. I get really embarrassed when I'm sneezing all the time. I have like an itchy nose or throat, like ugh, like just the, the itchiness in the back of your sinuses is like so distracting and so annoying. And I get like pressure in my ears too. It's really painful. Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a new candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy. It would be so much easier if I was looking for someone to help me with sweetening audio or let's say someone to run my merch shop or all the little things that go into running a podcast. Usually something like that would be so slow and overwhelming. And honestly, I wish I had used Indeed and I will use Indeed in the future. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash badwithmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash badwithmoney right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash badwithmoney. Terms and conditions apply. 
Need to hire? You need Indeed. What? Where's the fire? Is it just that there's like a lot of money on the line? Is it self-importance? What? Why do they think that way? I that that is such a great question because I you know I I personally think they don't have to think that way, right? But I think there there is a in sort of that financial world, everything is about kind of having an edge and gaining an information edge and advantage, and the more you can work to try to get that information or that edge is just going to hopefully, I mean, this is the belief of investors, I believe, translate into hopefully more positive returns, both for yourself and and for your limited partners, the investors in the fund. So, you know, I think in my book, I'm questioning, is, is this the right model of success? And is this, is this how we want to work? Where every second of our day is totally optimized and even rest itself is optimized. You know, rest is not real rest. It's to rest so you can work better Monday morning. Even for people who are able to last in that way of work. And I, I, I just don't think the, the attitude of, you know, how long did you last? I, you know, I lasted two and a half years at this job. Other people mm-hmm. lasted, you know, 10. I just don't think more is better. Like, why are we assigning a higher value for to, the ability to take burnout and what I think is inequitable treatment and just enduring, I, I think, enduring exploitation on the behalf of bosses and employers? I, I just don't think that that is the way we should be framing the ability to survive burnout. I think the system of work itself and the culture around work, and I'm talking about material conditions here, just has to change. Like I think my boss in the book was super nice, actually. He never yelled at me. He did give me bonuses, raises, and plenty of gifts. At the end of the day, what I really wanted was I wanted to be heard. I wanted to be seen. And what that means in material conditions is I wanted, I really needed help. Mm -hmm. I needed an assistant of my own. And I would see him make decisions that are, you you know, $100 million decisions in no time. And meanwhile, here I am asking for an assistant, even a part-time assistant. And he just said, no, it was very, very, very difficult to get any change and help and resource help across. And so that's what I mean by improving the material conditions of work itself. I think there's this element too where you talked about how long you lasted, where it's like, I survived. I lasted so long in this. I made it. I survived in these like terrible conditions. You know, I think there's this hopeful, hopefully reframe from, you know, Gen Z to millennials that will do something about this? Because I do think like in an industry where you're working, for example, your boss went through those conditions. His boss went through those conditions. And I'm saying his, yes. you know, like because the, it per- was, yes. the person, then the person who succeeds you is probably a certain type of, of I will say, cis straight white man. So like it's this level of of mirroring each other that just keeps rewarding itself. And, you know, and I think, you know, there is there probably are people listening who are like, well, neither you nor Gabe could hack it. But why would we want to is is my question yeah. to, to your point of what are you winning and gaining at the end of that? Gabe, so smart what you just said, because I think about how uh, not too long ago, you know, I'm a millennial when I when I was growing up, the kind of concept of work was if you put in your time, you know, probably burnt out. But if you put in your time, your years, if you do the grind, there's some payoff or promise land at the end where it's going to be a little bit easier. You get the corner office, you can, you know, like go on the golf course Friday afternoons, whatever yeah. it is, you know, you want to do. And you're totally right. It's probably a he. And so that that is, you know, why you might put in 15 years of burnout just just to get to that point. But you know, I, I think some, some something happened in the last, I'm going to say, probably decade-ish. And I, and I really look at people like Elon Musk is a great example of this, where it's, you get to the that level of CEO and all you get is to add more CEO jobs on your plate, you know, and he, he's like mm-hmm. CEO of multiple, multiple companies. And so the point is, once you get to a high level of the C-suite, the corner suite, where, where you can relax, 
it, there's no, the status there is no longer like, oh, I'm going to take an afternoon off to kind of recharge or go, you know, yeah. do the thing I really want to do. It's like, no, I'm actually going to take the status and become CEO of like five other startups that I'm yeah. doing, you know? And so we're no longer, so that kind of what's at the end of the rainbow there is, is just more work. It's not, it, you know, any way healthier or, or a kind of better yeah. relationship with work. So, so I, I just, yes, that, that is, that is, I think what is in, in need of reframing. And I think is a, is a, is a generational difference from when I grew up to now. Do you think that there's, and I've witnessed this, I'm just, comp- I'm comparing it to entertainment. Do you think that there is this element of, I survived, I'm a marginalized person. I survived this treatment or I survived to get to be, because I'm like these guys, to be like these guys, that's rewarded. And when I see another marginalized person who can't play the game, I'm like, well, I don't want anything to do with them or I don't want to help them or I don't want to like, I don't want to, you know, I'm not going to bring this person up under me or whatever because I'm still trying to survive and I'm getting rewarded for being like these guys. Yeah. I think there is a absolute kind of in entrenching of the of the system whereby people in power reward both in terms of promotions and compensation those who have similar values to them. And I think just this like I toughed it out so you should, you know, and to so my my boss in the book even when I came when I came to him with my bur- burnout and it was like well documented. I had already been really trying hard to solve it on my own for Two years, two years I was trying. And he kind of gave me a lecture on how he was burnt out for 10 plus years. So, you know, if he he thinks I'm so tough and if if he said, if I can do it, I think you can too. And but but I, I don't want to. And also, you know, I mean, I have many sort of critiques and ways to unpack that statement of his, but it's also like, you know, he is an he owns he is an equity owner, he owns his fund. And so his burnout, he's putting in, he gets all the reward of that burnout, burning out for someone else. It's my white male billionaire boss. Yeah. And where he gets to totally decide how he pays me, yeah. which, which I, I, which I felt was actually, I felt like I was doing three jobs and getting paid for one. So, so on the surface, it's like, was I fairly compensated for my role? I, I would say in one way, if you're just taking a look at, you know, my job, like, sure. But if you actually take a look at what I was doing and what he expected of me, like, I I don't think it, I don't think it was really fair. And this is why I want to, and my book is titled Private Equity, but because I think giving equity and giving actual ability for, for other people to both take ownership over their work product and be able to invest in their work and themselves, I, I, I think is everything. And I just, I, I don't want to burn out for someone else and just hope that they recognize my, my value and hope that they pay me and hope that they promote me after a few years. Hey guys, Gabe Dunn here. I just wanted to let you guys know that I have a Patreon at patreon.com slash Gabe S. Dunn. And on that Patreon, I'm going to start doing live hangs with everyone who is a patron. So if you want to join the Patreon, you can get all these episodes ad free, videos of our mailbag episodes, extra writing from me, blogs, fiction, other stuff, things that I'm thinking about with regards to money and personal stories. And also now live hangs with me on Zoom once a month. So join the Patreon. And if you're not a member of the Discord, hop on over to the Discord. That's free. The link will be in the description. It's so fun. So many of you guys talk over there. It's like truly popping off. Um, And if you're on the Discord, I would love to see you in the live hang. So I get to put a face to a name. So yeah, please join patreon.com slash Gabe S. Dunn and come hang out with me. Managing my finances is incredibly stressful and time-consuming. I'm sure you guys know. You've been with me on this journey. You know how many finance apps I've tried. You know how much they haven't worked for me. And I'm always on the hunt for a finance app that fits my life. And then I tried Monarch. It is so easy to use with powerful features, collaboration tools, intuitive design, personalization, constant product improvements. 
I really value an app that allows me to do all of this without confusion. And especially important to me is intuitive design and the ability to personalize. Because clearly finance is not one size fits all. Did you know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce? Monarch, the top-rated personal finance app, also has built-in collaboration features so you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget, and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Are you saving for a down payment, a wedding, a dream vacation? Monarch makes it so easy to help you reach your financial goals. That's why the Wall Street Journal named it the best app for growing your savings. Have you been frustrated with personal finance apps that are cluttered with ads, difficult to use, rarely updated? So was Monarch. They built a new kind of personal finance app that's intuitive and powerful and ad-free and constantly improving based on customer feedback. Experience a personal finance app that prioritizes the user experience above all else. Monarch is the top-rated, all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash badmoney. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. Plus, there's ad-free privacy you can trust. We will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash badmoney. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash badmoney for your extended 30-day free trial. I love to track progress. As you guys know from listening to this show, I'm constantly tracking my progress. What have we done so far in 2024? And spring is in full bloom. Are your finances blooming too? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, it's easy to start building credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments with no annual fees or interest. And if your credit scores grow, so could your opportunities for lower rates on loans like for a car or a home. You can use it everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. That's right, you can build your credit using your own money. Get paid up to two days early with direct deposit. With a qualifying direct deposit, you can get access to your money sooner. Fee-free overdraft with SpotMe. Overdraft up to $200 without fees with SpotMe when you set up a qualified direct deposit. Just set up a qualifying direct deposit, sign up for SpotMe, and Chime will spot you up to your limit when you make a credit card purchase or cash withdrawal that exceeds your balance. Access 60,000 plus fee-free ATMs. That's more than the top three national banks combined. Easily find one near you with the Chime app. Send and receive money. Use Chime to pay anyone, Chime members or not, and cash out your money fee-free. With Chime's secure credit card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started at Chime.com slash badmoney. That's Chime.com slash badmoney. Chime. Feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. Well, it's not even about compensation, the number for compensation. It's the, the, what you're describing that's important. Cause I think people might say, oh, well, she was making so much money at this job, whatever, which by the way, you can hoard that money away and never use it. But I do understand the, that people are like, well, she's probably making six figures. But think about it in terms of your own workplace. Let's say you work at a small, you know, you work at a gap, you work at a whatever, like the, the model is still the same, which is your, the person at the top makes a huge amount of money. We just had Madeline Pendleton on describing it as a pyramid scheme or an MLM, right? The person at the top makes money. Hey, work under me. I'll give you some of my profits for what you do for me. Get some people under you. They'll work for profits a little bit under you. And nobody is being fairly compensated for what they do. And you could go back and listen to that episode with Mad- for, with Madeline, but it's like, you know, that that's the thing. It's like, take the model. Don't hate the people working in this system. 
take the model and apply it to like your system of of career it doesn't make any fucking sense and there's no and it's like you're working to make someone else wealthy you know people understand it when it comes to rents and mortgages right they go well if you're paying rent you're paying someone else's mortgage yeah i mean that's not necessarily true but yeah but if you're paying if you're working yourself to the bone you're doing that for someone else yes exactly i'm working i'm you know i in the, in the book, I fall on a treadmill answering my boss's email because I was expected to respond to emails instantly. You know, I, I'm sacrificing my health uh, physically, mentally. I'm also sacrificing my, my dreams. Initially, I took this job thinking this was going to be my day job and I wanted to do an evening MFA. You know, that did not happen at, at this job. And I was just sacrificing all of me, my identity and and my time that I will never get back, you know, for to in to fully to enrich someone else. And I, I, I don't think that's a fair model. Yeah. You know, it's interesting too. I see. So there was this girl on TikTok and she made this video that was like, your boss mad at you when you miss an 8 a.m. meeting, but you're but you work from nine to five. And it's and and the comments, I always look at the comments and the comments are interesting because some of the comments are like, well, why would you miss a meeting? Or like, just come to the 8 a.m. meeting. I don't understand. And then other people were like, did you notice that it says her job is from nine to five? That is the job. And so some people are like, well, why do other people have to come to the meeting and you don't? And like the, the disparity in the comments is always very fascinating to me because some people might say, well, what you're going to work at this job? Why would this job, you know, allow you to take a, a college classes in something else? And it's like, it's none of their fucking business what I'm doing after 5 p.m. Exactly. Exactly. And to everything you just said, something that I think about a lot is our need to have clearly defined roles that are clearly in the job description. Mm -hmm. And so that t TikTok, you know, post that you just talked about with the comments, if it says nine to five, it's, it's nine to five. And you can't just change the, you know, job description and expect the employee to be okay with it because yeah. that that's not that's just not fair you can't unilaterally change the the position you know and and i think so i really think the defining it and uh, you know i think job descriptions that list re responsibilities also i think have been I, I think there's like a leakage and a creeping of the responsibilities to just expand mm -hmm. to include anything everywhere all the time and you know, my, certainly my role is just to like, you know, there was at, at least one line of the 97 lines, I think there were. One of them was just to, at least one was just to be able to do anything and chip in at any time. And it's like, well, well what does that actually mean? You know, mm -hmm. what about Friday at 11.32 p.m.? Like, mm -hmm. it technically means that, you know? And so I think it, to, to help just work the system of work in general, I think we need to be clear about these boundaries. And then to also, as a culture, to collectively judge people less for just sticking to their job description. And mm -hmm. I think that, that I think there is such, I have such admiration for people who just stand up for, this is what I'm compensated for. This is what I sign up for. Mm -hmm. And you know, why should I just allow unilaterally my employer to relax those conditions and include more work? Yeah, this person was saying the response is then, oh, will I be paid overtime for the hour before? Exactly. And I was like, ah, exactly. well, here's the other thing is that in your case, they just fire you and replace you with another drone. And then they in their minds go, well, sucks that we hired that Asian woman. We shouldn't have. Yes, exactly. Ugh. And just it's yes. And I feel like there is this attitude of I felt like in in this job, I, I had to perform kind of a gratitude of like, everyone was reminding me all the time how lucky I was to have this job and, you know, to be in conversation with my boss, to be working for him. And, you know, to be fair to all that, I, I did feel some of that, right? Like I felt a security at my job that otherwise I wouldn't have. I felt like I very often was doing very interesting things, but the overwhelming feeling was like, why should I be grateful for something when I feel like I, I work hard, I deserve this. And, and then the need to perform that gratitude, like he wanted to know that I knew uh, how I, how appreciative he wanted to, me to express my appreciation. And, uh, you know, I, I felt like I adequately did, but 
some, some, sometimes I, I'm sure I didn't. And I just couldn't perform more because I felt like I was, you know, I felt like I, I deserved everything because I worked really hard. And yes. And so to your point of, yeah, here's another, just me, I, I am Asian and I identify as a woman. And they thought perhaps that, I don't know how much of this was explicit, but I think just in general, not only with my boss here, but just I, I, ha- I have had a long career in finance. Mm-hmm. Just the idea that like being a woman and being Asian, that I might need the job more or that I might work harder because I need the job more. And so I felt like a lot of my work and background and identity was actually exploited mm-hmm. by my employers. At my first job at Fidelity Investments, when I tried to change because of their really, I would say just toxic culture with quite a bit of sexual harassment, unfortunately. When I tried to change jobs, I met with a recruiter and the recruiter told me immediately in 2008 or something, 2009, he was like, and he himself was Asian. He said, you have two strikes going against you already for another job. You're Asian and you're a woman. And I just thought like, you know, just to have that framing from someone who's trying to help me get the job. is So then the recruiter or someone else might think, well, then if I do get an opportunity, even after having two strikes against me, I, I must feel so lucky and I will work harder and mm. I will be more appreciative. I will do extra homework and extra work on top of what is required just because I might be so lucky, you know? And mm-hmm. so I absolutely do feel, you know, very lucky in many, many respects. But at the same time, I think that's kind of hiding some of these structural issues of particularly women and people of marginalized backgrounds, their labor being exploited often. Oh, I don't think you have to feel lucky at all. Fuck them. I don't think you have to feel lucky at all. No, fuck them. That's not what I was saying. The fact that they're even using those as demerits is like ridiculous. No, No. No, that, oh, those are strikes against you. And you're supposed to be like, well, how do I fix them? Bitch, no. Yeah. Absolutely not. Yeah. No, I yeah. don't. You, you're like, Thank a, you for like being that. like, oh, well, you know, I, I am coming from a. Pro- no, fuck them. I could say that sometimes on shows. I'm like the people are like, yes, I agree. But it's just like I have to be like, yeah, whatever. So the I, well, this is just a personal question. Have you seen Fair Play or is that going to be way? Yes. You saw it. Oh, yes. I mean, everyone was like, you have to see it because, well, also, you know, I think that Cl- I forgot her last name, Chloe. Something. She's the director, Chloe Demont. Or maybe. Oh yeah, she Demont. Also yeah. Had written for yeah, Demont. She had written for Billions, and there actually is a character on Billions, a character based based off of me. And I what? met with her. Yeah, I think she she was in the second season, I believe, and she was the chief of staff, right hand woman to the major hedge fund manager in in billions named x and and she was amazing i love that character and so i i when i saw fair play with chloe demont as as the writer i believe and and the director i was like i have to see this it's like a relationship set at a hedge fund and it's all about control money but really it's just a psychological war all at war between mm-hmm. these two characters and and the reason why that that movie was so interesting to me is is because so my book is set at work it's primarily a work story but there's also a big personal story in there and one of them is my ex-fiance and he and I had a relationship, unfortunately, like the two main characters in oh, Fair Play. Oh, no, you both worked at the, you both worked at the hedge fund? Well, he, he didn't work at the same hedge fund, but he had worked in hedge funds and he just was extremely, I will say, je- he uses jealous yeah. of any kind of positive movement in my career. Yeah. And he was so jealous of something related to my career such that he he could not even hear me talk about my job. I would Mm -hmm. mention the name of my company. I would mention my boss and he would cut me off and say, stop talking about him. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, wow. And the, and the better I performed at my job, the more he tried to undermine me Mm -hmm. by controlling other aspects of my life, including my diet, Mm -hmm. my tone of voice, my emotions and it was just a full out i think 
psychological war and it had to do with power dynamics and relationships and money and control. So yeah, sorry. That was a long winded no, answer no. To, to your question of fair play. I, no, I no, know, no, 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 yeah, yeah, no. It's very relevant and, and I think relatable and I'm sorry that happened. And like, I think like there is the, the plot of fair play is this couple that is like sort of semi-perfect and they get engaged and they both work at this hedge fund and their relationship is secret and they think that he's going to get promoted and then yep. she gets promoted and he loses his fucking mind slowly over the movie and he and all of and like all of his like stuff comes out toxic misogyny and jealousy and all these things that he thought of himself or whatever it's horrifying it's a horrifying it's like a horror movie but it's real save big on brunch for mom all in the kroger app get 16 ounce packs of flavorful angus 90 lean ground sirloin for 4.99 each with a digital coupon then buy two get two free on 12 packs of delicious coca-cola pepsi or 7-up all with your card Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Okay, sorry. I'm still stuck on she put a character in billions about you. (laughs) <laughs> you consulted yeah, with yeah. her? I consulted with the, the these the two sh- well I think they're co-show runners Brian Koppelman and David Levine. Wow. And they they were the ones that asked me to come in to they I went in the, into the Billions writers room and they asked me to speak about my job and just who I am as a character and you know, it was very interesting because I thought that they might focus on my firm or more more my work relationships and they really cared about me as a character and that's also that was a very clear moment in my life when I you know I was sitting across from them it was a table full 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 of writers mm-hmm. so it was like eight, eight, eight or ten writers or, or something and we were having lunch and I I was really like I don't you know thinking this to myself but I don't want to be doing what I'm doing I want to want to be what doing what you're doing Aww. they were writers they were they were brilliant mm-hmm. like they understood both the technical workings of hedge funds, but also just the like the sh- sharp psychological aspects of these games that people play, especially when power and you know capital and high amounts of money are are at stake and in play. And it was just they. I just thought they were the most brilliant people ever. And and so at the end of that interview, Brian asked me like. He said, you're, you're so interesting. We were originally going to make this character a man. I think now we'll have to make her a woman. Can we make this character Chinese too? Or is that going to be too revealing and obvious? And I, I told him, no, go ahead. And then I, when I watched the show, you know, she, she was in fact super brilliant and super amazing. And they made her a woman of color. I think she went to... West Point, if I, I'm, I mean, it was like years ago, so I can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just she, a black woman of a color, went to West Point, super sharp, and was just really able to speak confidently with an authority, and she would not let it was all men around her kind of diminish her own sense of self worth, and mm-hmm. I, I thought that was incredible. That's so interesting to come from this back. I think a lot of times with writing. People, so people come from these situations, these backgrounds, but they're not able to convey to other people what happened because it is so subtle. The manipulation is so subtle. The the ability for things to be toxic is so subtle. You know, people will say, you said, my boss didn't scream at me. But that's like, you understand that that's like an abuse tactic, right? Where you're like, well, he never yelled at me. And I was thinking when you said that the bar is on the floor. Like, what do you mean he never yelled at you? Like, and, and I'm not sort of pushing you, but I'm, I am saying like, you know, it is this thing where you lose track of what's normal and you start to be like, look, he never yelled at me and he did give me bonuses. Yeah, that's called a job. Yes, exactly. Like that should be just that. That's a yes, job, yes, yes. Carrie. Like that's, <laughs> you know, but I think we're taught these these things that become normalized where you're like, well, I don't want to I don't want to seem like I'm complaining. 
or, you know, and, and I think that's only really asked of, you know, a certain subset of person. So, yes, you know, I do think that that then to come out of that experience and be able to explain it in a book and be able to like hope that people like get it. I understand it's hard because look, I look at the comments on TikTok. Clearly people are not into subtlety. So, you know, I, I do think that if you're listening to this and you are having these similar thoughts or you work somewhere where you are thinking like, well, it's not that bad. Your threshold for what is not that bad is constantly being manipulated into rising. Exactly. That's what's happening. That's what's happening. And only with time and distance do I realize now that I was being set up to fail Mm. and that my bar for, you know, quote, a good billionaire, it was just so low. I'm like, you know, I I was telling myself, well, well, he's, he's great compared to all the other billionaires. And I'm like, but, but what, but why, you know, they, I should have super high, you know, moral and ethical and behavioral expectations of every billionaire, you know, it's, it's not like good for billionaires. It's so, I just, I love what you're saying. Yeah. It's, it's the question is where is the bar set and why, and why, why, why is that the assumption of of behavior? And why can't, why can't we raise our assumptions for, for equitable treatment, you know, from billionaires? Like I, I, I think that's why was he a billionaire? What, how did he get his money? He, I, he grew up fairly, I fairly mean very, very privileged. Already in these networks of money, capital, mm. private school, boarding school, East Coast elite. Okay. And through those networks, he was able to, you know, make connections with friends and certain people who eventually introduced him to this kind of major figure in the hedge fund space. Mm -hmm. And this major figure in the hedge fund space took him in. He worked as an analyst there. And then when he was ready to go out on his own, you know, he's fairly early. He, his mentor just was like, you know, here, here's some millions of dollars for you to go out on your own. And, you know, it's, it, it's too easy. And so it's like, you know, I, the question, I think there's an interesting question, like, is he self-made? You know, he didn't inherit his billions, but at mm. the same time, being in those networks, which are close to certainly people like me mm. and many other people, um, if you don't already have access to those networks from the beginning, you know, I think time is of the essence here because with just this financial idea of compounding, you know, he was mm. able to getting these networks early, start his career early and kind of start his fund when he was still really young. And therefore it's kind of like one of the things about Warren Buffett is if if you invest and if you keep on investing over 50 years, compounding will take care of, Mm -hmm. if you do it well, will will take care of a lot of your wealth, (laughs) exponential increase in wealth. That's how he made his, his billions. And so when I started working for him, he had debuted on a list and you know there are all these lists yeah of youngest billionaires in america so what is the thought process do you think behind i don't think i'll sir i'll solve world hunger today if you don't know it's fine because i'm asking you like what does a crazy person think (laughs) yeah that that i mean that this this is such a this is such a fantastic question because i think something i think a lot about with respect to my former boss, because he he really did care. And, you know, I, I, I don't know about now, but certainly when I worked with him, he cared about ethics. He cared about morality and he cared to be a, you know, so-called like he would never use this term, but good billionaire. Sure. He just really cared about doing the right thing. When writing this book, I was thinking, you know, he he could quit if he wanted to. Yeah. And what is keeping him there? To, you know, he has X billions of dollars. Why is he still working, still burning out to make X, 2X, you know? And so he even tells me that I asked him at one point, it it was one of these rare moments where I could tell he was a little more open than Mm -hmm. he otherwise normally would be. And we talked about, I asked him, you know, what was your American dream? And he answered, so quickly, like without even thinking, and it was uh, to be a surgeon. He really wanted to be a surgeon. 
And I just was like, well, 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 you know, I, I, why are you a manager, you know, like, I think whatever is keeping a certain, you know, I I don't want to speak for, for all, but, but I, I think my former boss is not the only person who might think this way. I think for a lot of these hedge fund billionaires, I think that what's keeping them there is something beyond making the next billion. It has something to do with the story they tell themselves about themselves, about their own identity, about their own worth. And it's just really hard to change people's stories about themselves. And when they tell themselves they need to do something for some reason, you know, it, he's, he needs to do it for a reason other than money, I I think. Um, yeah. Of course, I, I don't know for sure, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, appreciate you diving into the psyche. I guess I asked sort of an impossible question, but well, where can people find you and your book and more about you? Thank you so much for for being so open on the show. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to you today, Gabe. Like, I, I also have to say that I, I think I read somewhere that maybe you wrote for Big Mouth. I did. Yeah. Right? Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, you know, I have three epigraphs in my book. This epigraph didn't make it in, but I am obsessed with this quote from Big Mouth. And I, I don't know if you know it. You probably, I mean, you definitely do. I think I feel, but I think it's with Coach Steve where he, he, he says something like, in the future, your options are to be a Lyft driver or a billionaire. And I just really love that. because, And that was kind of, I, I was throwing around like, you know, six different epigraphs. Unfortunately, this was, this didn't make the cut. Yeah. But I just loved how that so succinctly and brilliantly captured the winners take all uh, mm-hmm, society mm-hmm. and economy that we're living in, where it's either you're spiraling up to be a billionaire or yep. you're, you're kind of stuck in this world of, lift driving you know yeah. and so th- those are the two options and I, I in this podcast and with you I, I question why and could there be more options you know and so yeah. that's what I'm trying to I'm trying to raise these exact questions in my book private equity and people can find me on Instagram I'm at Carrie E Sun C-A-R-R-I-E Y-I-S-U-N anyone can feel free to email me through through my website CarrieSun.com. Thank you, Gabe. It was wonderful to speak to you today. Bad With Money with Gabe Shane Dunn is a production of Noted Bisexual, produced by Melissa D. Montz and Diamond Print Productions, edited by Diane King, post-production sound by Coco Lorenz, and music by Mike Kaplan, Zach Sherwin, and Jack Dolgen, as sung by Sam Barbera. Thank you. Love you. Bye.